Blog Talk Radio.
What a great way to start off a Friday show. Um, we want to say to everyone out there, yeah, have a heart. And uh, for everyone out there, um, we want to say that the people that are affected by the storms that are going on everywhere, um, you know, with it, we're thinking about you and that we do have a heart for everyone. So that's a perfect song. That's Bonnie Raitt, obviously. And uh Really great song that Spencer Drake, my co-host, um, wanted me to play today. We have a special guest today, uh, Danny Goldberg, um, who's with us about his new book, uh, the, his newest book, um, "In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea." Um, Danny Goldberg has an amazing, um, uh, just you know, presence in the world, and he has some great stuff that he's currently working on and things that he has done, and, I mean, such an accomplished um, person in the entertainment industry and and uh, author and uh, business. So we're going to be bringing him on, and before we start that, I also want to say happy birthday to Heather, wherever you may be, and I uh, want to let everyone know the show will be available afterwards on iTunes, and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio afterwards as a podcast. Um, you can download it. And uh wanted to also say that if you'd like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036, and there is a chat room that's open. I do see quite a few people in there. And uh wanted to let everyone know that if you'd like to go into the chat room, you do need to create an account. With that, I'm going to bring my co-host in, uh, Spencer, calling from New York, and also Danny. Um, Danny and Spencer, welcome. Hey, hi, Holly. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. So what a great hi, song. That's a great song to start off with. Danny, welcome to the show. And Danny and I were talking right before the show started, besides his Amazing, amazing industry experience with uh, all these iconic artists that you've worked with. Um, you also do, and I want to, I want to big this up because I want to let people know because everybody knows I'm into a lot of spirituality and stuff. You do your own podcasts on what network is that? It's called the Be Here Now Network. It was, it's, it's, okay. it's affiliated with yeah. Ram Dass's uh, Love Serve Member Love Foundation. Be Here Now, of course, mm-hmm. was the, the the name of his uh, book that influenced yep. me so much, and I think millions of other people. Love that book. 1970, yep. and and uh, you know they have a, a group of podcasts by. Uh, uh, you know Sharon Salzberg and a lot of other you know well well known spiritual Amazing. teachers and and uh, Ragu Marcus who c- cooked up the idea asked me to do one even though I'm not uh, quite at, uh, in that category uh, and I call it rock and rolls it's a play on words because Ram Dass talks a lot about the fact that we should identify ourselves as souls not based on our roles so I and then of course I've been in the rock and roll biz so i uh, you know and and i've done it for a couple of years every three or four weeks uh try to just have conversations with people about how to integrate spirituality and spiritual traditions with so-called real life did you read my mission statement that i bring about a spiritual awareness however we can in music and through pop culture and news, that's what we're all about. So yeah, I know. Here we I know. are. Well, that's Spencer. why I'm so grateful to to, <laughs> to, to be talking to you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you wrote this amazing book, and I know that Spencer and I both got this book, and I know that you have worked with 
some great, amazing artists, and you have other books. So why don't we, Spence, why don't we do this? Why don't yeah. I have Danny introduce himself first and talk a little bit about where he came from and yeah, how he great. got to where he is now with uh, yeah. with the newest book because he has other books that he's written before this, and plus he's worked with other record labels and represented yeah. some amazing artists. So go for it, Danny. <laughs> Well, that's a broad canvas, but I would say this. I've been yeah. in, professionally, I've been in the rock and roll business pretty much since the late 1960s. I, I dropped out of college and was in the, got a job with the trade magazine Billboard when I was 18. And, and over the course of time, wow. uh, uh, you know, was started as a rock writer, then I was a publicist, and uh, most notably was the publicist for Led Zeppelin in the 1970s. And that sort mm-hmm. of uh, launched my 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 career in the music business over time i managed various people including bonnie Raitt during the time that she recorded that song that you played at the beginning that's on the nick of time yeah album, which mm-hmm. when i and my then partner ron stone managed bonnie and um uh, you know i was one of the managers of nirvana that ran record companies for many years and currently i have a small management company called gold village entertainment and my clients include uh, steve earl and uh, the band against me and and some uh, some other artists. Um, the book uh, is not about any of that. I wrote a rock memoir called Bump Against a Genius seven or eight years ago that has sort of chapters about Zeppelin and Stevie Nicks and Bonnie Raitt and Nirvana that mm-hmm. that I, I that I you know glad I did it. But this new book is not a memoir. It's it's a history of the culture that inspired me as a teenager. It's it's you know Amazing I realized that book. this year 2017 is the 50th anniversary of 1967 which happens to be mm-hmm. the year I graduated from high school. And it's also the year, to me, the peak year of kind of the hippie phenomenon. You know, by 68, there were the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, there was a darkness descending on the counterculture, even though, you know, the war continued to go on and a lot of very interesting things continued to go on. But 67, to me, is just kind of a certain peak of the balance of forces between spirituality, it's the year that the Beatles uh, met Maharishi and suddenly the word meditation was, uh-huh. you know, tabloids and not just, you know, the, the whole New Age movement, I think, you know, was, was stimulated so much by the Beatles uh, and George Harrison's interest in that. It was the year of the worst uh, racial disturbances since the Civil War. It was the year of uh, huge protests against the war in Vietnam, which was rapidly escalating. And, uh, you know, by, by the beginning of the next year, there were people uh, running to uh, uh, unseat President Johnson, who was a proponent of the, of the war. Uh, it was the year in music when FM radio really was created as a medium for music. Absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, starting in San Francisco with KMPX and, and yep. uh, so many uh, artists that we still remember today made their debut records. And 67 was the year of the very first album of The Grateful Dead, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, Pink Floyd, and The Velvet Underground all made their debut albums that year. And the Jefferson Airplane had made an album in 66 with a different lead singer, but their debut album with Grace Slick as lead singer and the one that had their breakthrough mm-hmm. record. Uh, White Rabbit and Someone to Love also came out in 67 and of course it was the year the Beatles did Sgt. Peppers and All You Need Is Love. It was an amazing year for music an intense year for political protest and it was the year that psychedelics really became a, a, a mass phenomenon because LSD had been made illegal right at the end of 66 in California which of course just mm-hmm. made the uh, 
that made illegal uh, trafficking in it uh, much, much uh, easier. Uh, so I just wanted, and I just remember being in high school and being so mesmerized and inspired by whatever this hippie culture was and all these different aspects of it. And I just wanted to really research and study in the kind of granular detail what was actually happening with some of the people I I, there were heroes to me like Muhammad Ali and Abby Hoffman and, oh, know, absolutely. The and, and other people yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. to, and to just try to understand what were the components of that feeling that I remember of kind of uh, idealism and, you know, uh, that Greek word agape, you know, kind of universal love. And uh, so I just uh, mm-hmm. I just spent a lot of time researching it. It's about 5% memoir because I wasn't all that interesting as a teenager, but I make it clear it's kind of through my eyes. And 95%, you know, history just trying to piece together what happened that year. And it's a pretty amazing year, and I, I had fun doing it. Yeah, the, you know, yeah. Uh, Danny, I had to ask amazing. you something. You brought up something in the book that I really followed, uh, uh, which a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, was a big thing. The San Francisco Oracle, that paper was really amazing. And you bring it well, up you now. Know, I read every word of it in, in researching for this book. It was one of my best sources. They did a facsimile edition about 10 or 15 amazing. years ago, a bound edition, yeah, every yeah. single issue of the Oracle was there, and I had to get a magnifying glass, because I'm sure you remember, Spencer, the type yep. was so small, and they would do all this weird psychedelic ink, you know, and Art Nouveau typeface, uh-huh. so I literally sat there for months with a magnifying glass, reading every single word of the 18 months, I think there were about 15 issues of the Oracle, or, or so, and it was the document that. of yeah. the Haight-Ashbury community, there's no question about it. And, and the yeah. artwork was phenomenal, Danny. You know, the artwork? The artwork was phenomenal. Yeah, it was the beginning of Silkscreen, and a lot of the psychedelic poster, all the psychedelic poster artists that became famous for doing Fillmore posters that are sold today on eBay for mm-hmm. $100 were doing these uh, centerfolds and covers of the Oracle. So a lot of that kind of what we call psychedelic art really was was introduced to the public through the Oracle. Yeah. yeah. There's someone here in the area, because I'm in Sonoma, and they say that they're going to be doing a book on the Oracle, a whole book all about the publishing and everything. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, well, I'll, that's I'll what definitely, I've heard. I'll definitely oh. buy it. I, 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 I certainly, uh, it, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty uh, as I say, a real document of a certain mm-hmm. feeling, and Haight-Ashbury specifically, uh, that 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 I think it documented it uh, as far as I know better than anything else did. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. You know, you spoke about you spoke about um, a little bit about the people that you worked with, and I know also I read in your bio that you've also worked, co-produced and co-directed a rock documentary feature, No Nukes, with Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, and Jackson Brown. Also. Um, I heard that you were a consultant for Vinyl, the series that was on HBO for a while, and uh, quite a few well, others. Well, I'm not quite as Miami old as Spencer, but I'm, but, I, but I'm pretty old, so I have a lot of different things <laughs> uh-huh. over these last 50 years I've been able to do, and those are definitely Amazing. some of them. Thank you. Uh, Amazing. Thank you for checking it out. So. Uh, yeah, I, I've just stumbled into the rock and roll business when I was 18. I, I didn't have – I was a sh- – poor student and uh, didn't really have any notion of anything but making enough money to pay rent so I could move out of my parents' apartment and found out there was a business around rock and roll and music that didn't require being a musician because I had no musical talent, but I was a huge fan. 
And uh, by by connecting with artists and finding a place for myself in that world, I found it got me into a lot of very interesting places over the years. You know, music seems to affect people in movies and politics, theater, mm-hmm. academia. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's been a it's been a good ride, and I'm still still riding. I get to do a show good. with you. Yeah, that's amazing. I can only imagine what it was like working with Led Zeppelin when they for when they were starting out. That's crazy. Well, I um, I got them when they were pretty big. I worked with for the, they, they, mm-hmm. I became their publicist in in the beginning of 1973, and they'd been around for a few years. The the album mm-hmm. that came out, the first album I was involved with working with them on was Houses of the Holy, which is their fifth album. Oh wow! And uh, and it was and and the mm-hmm. tour they did that year in America was the biggest tour they ever did. It was the one tour they did where they sold out uh, stadiums, started in Atlanta Stadium. And then in Tampa Stadium, they broke the record that the Beatles had had for the largest audience for one artist, you know, for for a normal concert, you know, um, separate from festivals. And um, they were the biggest band in the world. And I was 22, and they just liked me because I had long hair and knew the rock critics. And they'd had trouble with the press earlier in their career. They were a big radio band on the FM radio. They, you know, Stairway to Heaven was the most played song ever in the history, I think, of rock radio. Mm -hmm and a huge live act, but they hadn't gotten the, the kind of press they wanted, and I just met them at the right time, and uh, it was pretty amazing to be around them. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't quite realize then that I'd still be talking about it, you know, uh, all these years later. I was just trying to get mm-hmm. through each day and let them not be mad at me, but it was a great, it was pretty cool, and the guy I directly worked for was their manager, Peter Grant, who's a legendary Mm-hmm. Right, I think you're in the history of rock and roll. He passed that way about ten, fifteen years ago, but he really made breakthroughs on behalf of artists in terms of the way they got paid, and was the uh, role model for almost all the British rock managers that came after. Oh wow! Him. He was a real character. So he was literally over three hundred pounds. So he was right. He was a heavyweight. Wow. Yeah, and he was. He had been a former professional wrestler and a very, very tough <laughs> really? guy with cockney. I yeah, didn't know cockney. that. Yeah, he used I to call him. His wrestling name was Prince Mario Alasio in Europe, and he had been a tough, you know, kind of a security guy, borderline thug character, cockney, very little education, but incredibly smart, and just understood who Led Zeppelin was, and and the way he represented them to the record company, the concert promoters was very aggressive everything revolves around what the band wanted and he was my role model as a manager to this day I think what would Peter wow. do in this situation so I got to work for him well, for 3 years and you know I it was that was better than going to Harvard if you wanted to be in rock and roll <laughs> <laughs> Well you know this book Spencer and I both got um the yeah. photography and the stories in it and everything are just just amazing Do you want to Tell us a little bit about um, the research and everything that you had to do for all that and in your own words what you felt when you were writing. Well, what I wanted to try to do was to, um, you know, know, there's the the different chapters kind of. It's not done chronologically because it all takes place over the course of one calendar year. I wanted to just get a sense of the different vibes that were happening kind of at the same time in, in the in the culture, the part of the culture that I was interested in as a kid. I, I don't pretend to be doing a comprehensive history of everything that happened that year. There were all sorts of people that couldn't stand hippies and had nothing to do with the culture that interested me. But I did, uh, so I wanted to look at, uh, at Haight-Ashbury first because uh, that was sort of the 
ground central for what became the hippie phenomenon. By the end of 67, Haight-Ashbury was kind of ruined because the publicity um, and visibility that it had attracted uh, tens of thousands of runaways and other kids that had no place to sleep, and it attracted predators and junkies and pimps and and the a lot of the external symbols like, uh, you know, language like far out and groovy or tie-dyed shirts or even long hair became kind of the kind of much more of a punchline for sitcoms than it was a meaningful thing. But but originally it was really a very idealistic spiritual movement, uh, a kind of a, a, a counterweight to uh, materialism, which then as now was kind of the dominant American belief system and also distinct from organized religion because it was it was all inclusive and ecumenical it was very much influenced by the um, psychedelics which had been around for a while that became popularized in the 60s and uh, there were a lot of uh, groups like that were really trying to make everything questioning did we need money there were a group called the diggers that came out of the um, uh, kind of experimental theater world that, that had a free store and it would have a soup kitchen, you know, free food for people in the in the in the San Francisco community. You know, Haight-Ashbury was bordering Fillmore, which was a mostly black district, and you know, Haight-Ashbury itself was a magnet originally because the rents were low and artists and musicians could afford to live in these Victorian houses. They'd be, you know, ten, twelve people living in one, and the rent for the whole house might be a thousand dollars or something. Um, and um, the the uh, in January there was something called the Human Bee Inn. Which, which the uh, the editors of the Oracle, as well as um, Allen Ginsberg, and some other people in the community thought of, they called it a gathering of the tribes, because there was an awareness that there were a lot of different kinds of people that were questioning authority, and they didn't always communicate with each other. The, there was a whole group of people who were defining themselves by being against the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was such a big deal, it's hard to express it in modern terms because there was a military draft. We haven't had a draft since the 70s because of the reaction against the Vietnam War. But in those days, there were 20, 25 million men under the age of 35, including myself, that were could be drafted. And, in, you know, there were different ways of getting out of it for those of us that wanted to get out of it. Being in college was one way or different deferments you could get or saying you were crazy or... You know, if you uh, could get a psychiatrist to say that you were too crazy, uh, or some people literally went to Canada to escape it, and uh, you know, and of course, hundreds of thousands of people served in 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 and felt for one reason or another that they either had to go or wanted to go, and uh, I, I never was against any of the soldiers. The people I hung out with looked at them as uh, victims, not as perpetrators. We we blamed the people in the State Department and the president for. Uh, pursuing a war that we felt didn't have any relevance to American interests. And whatever you could say about those arguments, there's just no question that the existence of Vietnam today as a country doesn't threaten the United States. It just doesn't. We worry about a lot of countries in the world. We never worry about Vietnam. It's a vacation destination for Americans. Uh, you know, there had been this uh, rhetoric that some of the people in the government said that they called it the domino theory, that if Vietnam fell, it would trigger a series of other governments going communist, ultimately getting to Japan or Australia, and it would just be a change in the whole power oh, really? balance of the world. It sounds like now. Soviet communist <laughs> domination, and that just did not wow. happen. 
they, they, the, the, you know, the communist forces won. The, uh, it was a nationalistic victory. It wasn't ideological. They didn't particularly, in my opinion, care that much about Soviet Union or China. They just, whatever. These are old arguments from 50 years ago. But to be a teenager or in your early 20s and risk having to kill people and or be killed yourself, uh, it was a big, big, big deal. And there was huge protests, uh, uh, you know, in a way that America had, had not seen in in the last 70 or 80 years certainly may you know i i don't know you know you know i, I don't think it ever saw a protest like this and and uh you know i identified with the protests and a lot of the music at the time some of the artists i respected like phil oaks some of dylan's songs so jeff of the airplane country joe and the fish were were writing about the war and um you know so uh and then in race relations it was a hugely uh complicated time uh, Dr. King was still alive. 1967 was his last full year of life. Wow. He was in April of 68. He was, he was, he had grown into, I mean, he was always like this amazing figure going back to the fifties when he, in his twenties, uh, led the Montgomery bus boycott. But by this time he, he was so sophisticated about the problems with capitalism, uh, the the difficulty of, of of extending some of the victories, of Ill, of of making legal, they they accomplished ending legal segregation through the civil rights law, uh, and the voting rights law that were signed earlier in the 60s. But but the de facto segregation, the actual segregation in terms of the educational opportunities, the economic opportunities where people could live. In, in, including in northern cities, uh, was was very very difficult to deal with. It still is to this day, obviously. And so he was being questioned. I idolize King. He's the hero of my book. I feel he was not only a great oh, civil rights leader, yeah. American. He was yeah. a mystic. Yeah. You talk about the mm-hmm. depth of spiritual vision. He he was he was right he there totally with any acid it. head. Uh, and he yeah. was also a very radical political thinker who was really questioning capitalism. And in '67. He came out against the Vietnam War, against the wishes of most people in the civil rights movement. Uh, they felt that him opposing the war would um, alienate President Johnson, who had been such a big help to them in championing that legislation that I mentioned before. And so the NAACP, which was the leading civil rights organization in the country, they had a board of directors that voted 60 to 0 to condemn King for opposing the war. Really? And uh, he did oh. alienate Johnson, and uh, who unleashed uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI on him, uh, which, oh, uh, which many people believe led to King's uh, murder. And um, mm-hmm. and he was just uh, he was so committed to his ideals and to re-listen to his speeches uh, of that year was just so so inspiring and at the same time there were other very powerful black leaders that did not agree with him about nonviolence Stokely Carmichael became the leader of SNCC um there was an acronym that was stood for the student nonviolent coordinating committee but uh, that had been very active in a lot of voting voter registration fights in the south but Carmichael did not believe in nonviolence he coined the phrase black power and he was he was a real adversary to King within the black community. By the end of the year, the Black Panthers emerge onto the scene coming out of Oakland. Uh, they, I remember they, that. Uh, yeah. they, you, you, you had uh, Dick Gregory, uh, this uh, brilliant comedian who was uh, mm. kind of a link between show business and the civil rights movement, as Harry Belafonte was. And, 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 and the person that was the most uh, prominent uh, person in, the, in America to oppose the Vietnam War was Muhammad Ali. 
This was the year mm-hmm. that Muhammad Ali refused to be inducted, was convicted right. of avoiding the draft, was stripped of his heavyweight title. That all happened just weeks before King came out against the war, and it was one of the things that influenced King to feel that Marley, he couldn't hold back from it. So you had this development in music, you had this development in the anti-war movement, you had tremendous tensions as the civil rights movement was trying to be translating into day-to-day life, which included you know, these riots, the movie Detroit that just recently came out is about that. You know, there were dozens and dozens of people were killed, much worse than anything we've seen in recent years. Um, you had the, 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 the birth of what we came to call the New Age spiritual movement, an alternative to both traditional Western religions and to materialism really becoming popularized through, in part through the Beatles, in part through people like uh, uh, Richard Alpert, who is Tim Leary's uh, you know, colleague at Harvard, who got fired for experimenting with LSD with undergraduates and who later goes to India, uh, writes uh, the book Be Here Now after he meets his guru there and changes his name to Ram Dass. You, you had, um, you had uh, women in the left-wing movements uh, insisting on being uh, treated uh, equally and not just being the people who would get coffee for these left-wing revolutionaries and the, the, the very beginnings of what became known as second-stage feminism. A couple of years later, the gay rights movement would 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 explode into the public awareness through the so-called Stonewall riots, uh, you know, clearly influenced by the energy of the civil rights and feminist movements. Uh, so a lot was going on, and um, you know, I just uh, I just wanted to try to uh, to document it as much as I could. It's uh, dense. There's a lot of detail in it. I just I just wanted the reader to kind of get a sense of exactly what was happening in those areas of the culture that I was interested in. And, you know, there are a lot of characters in it, uh, Leary, Ram Dass. Uh, certainly the media was a very going through a very interesting period. Um, uh, Marshall McLuhan was a professor from Canada that had theorized about the uh, new way that the media connected with people, and he coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And he was a huge influence on, on the, John Lennon, on Tim Leary, on Abby Hoffman, other uh, many people in the in the anti-war movement. And because the generation that I'm part of, and I guess you are too, Spencer, the, the so-called baby boom generation, yeah, was yeah. just mathematically the biggest generation up to that point in our country, uh, advertisers uh, wanted to reach us. And right. so people that were editors of magazines or programmers of TV shows, even if they were older, felt pressure to find ways to connect with the baby boomers. And so a lot of people that were quite radical in many respects suddenly show up in Time magazine on network television, and there's this multiplier effect uh, as a result of the changes in in the media. These these alternative uh, utopian metaphysical spiritual ideas had been around in human beings for centuries, you know, but they were they were small groups. They might be part of a college or a small community or a commune somewhere or a group of intellectuals that kind of kept to themselves or they were in neighborhoods like Greenwich Village. But the distinguishing thing about the late 60s, why we remember it as a, in a particular way, was that energy it was multiplied a hundredfold by the mass media's interest in it as a result of the demographics and just expanding technology. 67, you know, is the year of the first satellite television broadcast. 
And what they broadcast was the Beatles performing All You Need Is Love. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I, Danny, I can remember going to, when I was in college, I was in this house, and uh, the person next to me bought Sgt. Pepper, and uh, this is a great story, and he'd play it on his record player outside his room, but it was, you know, it was like a regular vinyl record player, but it could play over and over. So I heard this record for about 24 hours at least, straight. Yeah, the old, the record players then that a lot of us had, you could do something. There was a piece of metal, I forget what it was called, and if you put it in a certain position, it would mm-hmm. trigger continual replays of, of, of one side of the record. Uh, and uh, a lot of time at parties, people would do that because, you know, people were getting high and they didn't want to yeah, yeah. keep turning the record over. Uh, but... Um, yeah, Sgt. Pepper's, uh, you know, was obviously, many people think, the peak of the Beatles' uh, uh, influence in society. Artistically, I mean, I think they made some other records that I personally like a little bit better, but it was certainly kind of their peak in terms of, they were just everywhere. I mean, everywhere I mean in the for me, it was like... Not just they, in the United States, I mean, all over the world, that record. Yeah, I mean, Rubber Soul, to me, was really when they start... I mean, that's in my opinion. I Rubber agree with Soul. you. That's the, one, that's the one that got to me. First of yeah. all, the first time I ever smoked dope... With some friends, we listened to Rubber Soul. So those yeah. songs are imprinted on my mind. And secondly, right. I agree with you. That's when the Beatles went from being a pop group to an artistic rock group, is with that record. Yeah. Right, right. Rubber Soul, yeah, definitely. I yeah, that was that 65. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, but the big one, but there's no question, Sgt. Pepper's, the energy that started with Rubber Soul kind of peaked in terms yeah. of their intense relationship with the audience with Sergeant Peppers. I think I think what happens, I mean for me it was like when they went from Rubber Soul and all of a sudden you get this record, as you know Danny or Holly, you know, uh, Sergeant Pepper, the it's totally different. I mean it's like mind blowing explosion into the black hole in the universe, right? And so it's like a mind blowing thing, you know, for me it was like mind blowing, right? Well, you know, what, you know, they were so famous, and the idea that that um, these very, very famous people that were making kind of girls scream all over the world and having these number one <laughs> records and were big enough that they had their own movies. I mean, other than Elvis Presley, no other rock or pop artists had their own movies, you know, until mm-hmm. the Beatles made Part Day's Night and Help. And that, that that they could just meet anybody and go anywhere and all over the world, and that they were dealing with the same counterculture things that everybody I knew was. It made it seem like they were on the same page that we were on. You know, it didn't seem like yeah. that distance between stardom and the audience. It seemed like we were all kind of going through this together. And that's mm-hmm. what they did with the album cover. You know, they, if you remember the album cover, Sgt. Pepper's, you know, previous Beatles albums, you know, just had the Beatles on them. Right. This, mm-hmm. The Beatles are there as part of a group of like <laughs> 70 or 80 people, uh, including Tim Leary and, uh, you know, movie stars of the past like yeah, Marilyn Monroe and, uh, you know, mystics like Paramahansa Yogananda. And, you know, you can go online and read all the different people. They were associating yeah. themselves and placing themselves in the context of this broader movement, mm-hmm. you know, explicitly. So it wasn't just our imagination that they were getting high or thinking about these uh, utopian or weird radical ideas. They were openly associating with, with those kinds of uh, uh, thinkers on it and uh, it was also a time when recording technology was changing and stereo was finally being used as an art form and not just as a gimmick so they did things sonically 
that no one had done before on that record. Now, yeah, I, I want to tell you something. I want to bring that times, up. But, but yeah. the first time you heard something being played backwards, a song like Within You, Without You, it's like, whoa. You know, they, yeah, were, Danny, they were really that's moving what the ball down the field. About. There's a, there's a series called Sound Breaking, and they interviewed George Martin. I don't know if you saw the series, but he talks about the making of that album and how he used, just like you're talking about, like uh, McCartney's voice going into this strange, turning it backwards, and the sound would come out really strange, like you're talking about. You know, the experimentation. Well, they didn't realize they, they couldn't tour anymore. The tours were so insane. You know, uh, they played in New York, you know, Shea Stadium. You know, that was the record that the, the Zeppelin later would break in 73 when I worked for the Missus in 65. And they played the Hollywood Bowl. And they played these places, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. They'd screaming from beginning to end. The sound systems were so much more primitive then than they were now that the Beatles couldn't hear any of their own music. There were no monitor systems and they were worried about their safety, you know, and they just, they just quit. They said, forget it. We just can't tour anymore. I think, you know, there's a documentary yeah. Ron Howard did that's on Netflix that kind of documents their last tour. So by the time they make Sgt. Peppers, they know this is it. This is their art form is recording. This is, the, this is their yeah. one way of connecting with fans. And they had access obviously to the most, uh, state-of-the-art technology they had there was no budgetary limitations on them because mm. they were the biggest selling group in the mm. world and they had george martin who was an extremely sophisticated producer understanding the technology and and uh, you know that was what made that record what it was but it wasn't only the sound it was also their commitment to the counterculture uh, mm-hmm. as uh, time magazine did a cover story on the beatles in 67 and they said, boy, it's been a long way from I want to hold your hand to I want to turn you on. Because, you know, the last <laughs> oh, line yeah, of Sergeant Peppers, you know, in that last song, A Day in the Life, I'd love yeah. to turn you on. You know, that's quite that. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was quite a journey. And it was only over the course of three years that they made that metamorphosis. And we all made that journey with them. Mm, true. Ab- yep. True, Danny. Yep. Absolutely true. Yep. It's very, it's very horrific and you know um what i wanted to say really quickly if you tuned in late we have danny goldberg on we're talking about his newest book in search of the lost chord 1967 and the hippie idea and i wanted to say real quick if you missed it it'll be available on itunes afterwards and also on blog talk radio on red velvet media is a podcast um what i wanted to say also was the book is available um to purchase on Amazon and pretty much everywhere. There's a couple. Yeah, wherever fine right? books are sold, Powell's, Amazon, mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble, um, you know, uh, some bookstores, thank God, and uh, you know, I, I, um, it's available as an ebook for people who like to read that way. You know, absolutely, so yeah. It's, it's a, it's official book. And mm-hmm. and also it's uh, published sure by Akashic there. Books. There's an audio there's an audio yeah. book version of it for people who like that. It's published by a wonderful indie Brooklyn publisher called Akashic Books. Mm-hmm. And um oh, in, nice. in Europe it, and then there's a British version of it called uh, you know published by Icon for anyone who happens to be Nice. A, well then you're very well rounded on that. Um yeah, you good. know what I wanted to ask you? Um what are you currently working on right now, Danny? Well, I'm trying to think of what I want to write next. I've been writing a series of short pieces over the course of the year, mostly for The Nation magazine and also for Mm -hmm. a website called Truth Dig and one called Alternet, about connecting some of the movements um, 
the political atmosphere of 67 to this era, the Trump era, because it just seemed like worth trying to reflect on what lessons they were from that era to this. And, it was, you know, and frankly, it was a way of plugging the book. Um, so I've kind of just finished doing that. I still have this management company, which is very important to me, Gold Village Entertainment. And Steve Earl released a new record earlier this year called So You Want to Be an Outlaw. And we have, uh, uh, you know, Against Me has been touring all over the world. They, 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 they did a U.S. tour with Green Day and, you know, we are various artists. You know, we're doing what managers do. And I'm thinking I have a couple of ideas for another book, but I need to spend a few months working to see if uh, I really want to do it before I want to talk about it publicly. So I, oh, I yeah, next no. time we do one of these, maybe I can t- tell you about it, but I'm just not there yet. I find writing to be kind of a, at the beginning of a project, just terrifying, the uncertainty that uh, comes with it. Uh, I've been able to publish three books. I've had a couple of others that I started and didn't finish. And, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. uh, starting that uh, journey uh, to see if I can come up with another one. But I still have a day job, which means a lot to me. And I, I and I serve on various boards of progressive organizations, you know, ACLU of Southern California and public citizens, mm-hmm. and try, I saw try that. to do what I can in that hey, way. And uh, by the way, do the uh, podcast Jamie, that you mentioned you every few weeks. You know, I do whatever Hold I can on, do. Thanks. You know, it's like how do I how do I be useful? You know, I was going to say, oh, Danny, uh, tell us about some of your new artists you're handling. Well, you know, we don't uh, – I'll tell you, the people that we have, they're not brand-new artists. We tend to – you know, I'm getting on, and <laughs> I've been doing this a long time, and I and I tend to uh, uh, like uh, artists that have some kind of a following. You know, we have a group uh, – one of the newer <laughs> artists is called the Mastersons. It's uh, Chris Masterson and Eleanor uh, Whitworth, who, who are also in Steve Earle's band. And uh, they mm-hmm. they have make their own records, so we handle them. We have Peaches, who who uh, uh, you know tours and makes records uh, against me. Uh, uh, again, who who tours and makes records, and and I think Laura Jane Grace, the singer of Against Me, who is you probably know is tra- transgender and wrote a pretty important book called Tranny that came out at the end of last year, and to represent her solo mm-hmm. also the Hives, a great Swedish rock band, Ben Lee. Really great. Uh, lives in L.A., Australian, originally Australian, singer-songwriter. Um, uh, we just signed uh, Betty Labette, who is a great R&B singer who, who is going to have a record out next year, uh, That uh, details of which haven't been announced yet, but it's pretty exciting. Um, and, uh, gee, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But, you well, know, you got Steve Earle, the management right? company. And Steve, and Steve, Steve who I mentioned at the beginning, who put out yeah. They Want to yeah. Be an Outlaw is on tour now. Uh, he also does a radio show on Sirius, and he's a, he's a renaissance mm-hmm. man, you know, obviously an actor. Yeah. He had a recurring mm-hmm. role in The Wire, and his regular character in Treme has written a novel and working on some new new books himself. I saw you know him at I 92 Y. Uh, Danny, what? I saw him at 92Y and City Wineries. Great, uh, live. Cool. Yeah, yeah. He he plays yeah. the city winery. He'll do it again in January. He he's on tour with the band now. Steve Earle and the Dukes. You know, really oh, focusing cool. on the new record. And then yeah. in the uh, and then in January and February, he does a residency. You know, City Winery uh, now has clubs in New York, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, and Nashville. Nashville, five cities. Right. Yeah. And he does a residency of four acoustic nights in each of those five cities. 
and uh, I love him acoustically. I love the band, yeah, but I, I also particularly love his acoustic show. There's an intimacy yeah. to it. And the City Winery is, uh, I, I, I hope that they broaden into more and more cities. They're really great curators of music. They present they in a way with good sound, they were here. Uh, they good were here food, and they're, you know, there's a, it's, it's a really great way to see, to see music. Well, Danny, they've been on our place. show. We had Slomo Lippitz yeah. on our show, City yeah. Winery, yeah. periodically. Yeah, what yeah, I, he's, what he's I a great, to say great was, guy. Shlomo's awesome. What he's I also to say baseball. was, you know, he's also a very good baseball player. That's you right. Know? I know. He's a pitcher That's on right. the Israeli the national band. team or something, and there's right. some world yes. baseball yes. things. Well, I don't know exactly the thing, but apparently he's a very, very good pitcher. Yeah, he is. He mm-hmm. is. What I wanted to say was, they did have a city winery here in Napa. Here in uh, I know, I know. It didn't it didn't, uh, it didn't <clears throat> catch oh, on as well there. You know what I it was? Think, uh, it was the people um they weren't ready for that type of venue and um they were in the old opera house. And um I went there a couple times and uh just amazing. And I know that they did uh the closing party for Bottle Rock a couple times, but the city winery definitely we love the city winery. Like right. Spencer said, yeah. we've had Shlomo on here quite a few times. But, you know, what I wanted to ask you really quickly, because I know we're running out of time, was um, when you did your writing earlier in, you know, with Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy yeah. Magazine and Billboard, um, what was that like for you? I mean, what, what kind of stories were you writing? Were you doing um, columns or... Well, I got, I, you know, I started the first one. I was at Billboard as a clerk helping to do the charts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found, it was just, you know, it was 90 oh, wow. hours a week was the job. I got it through the end of the New York Times. I didn't really know the, what Billboard was even. It was just, it was the job I could get. And after I was there for about a month, I realized there were people on the other side of the office that went to rock shows. In those days, the Fillmore East was still open. They'd be able to go to the Fillmore or some of the clubs in New York and write their opinions about about music and and get paid for it and i had low self-esteem having been a mediocre student but i knew i could do that so i badgered them and they and because you know they would let me cover the things that the older writers didn't want to cover in those days somebody who was 30 was like very very old and uh i was young and understood this new thing in my mind and so for example the woodstock festival i covered for billboard none of the older guys wanted to go oh you're Uh, kidding so wow. I, you know, I got to go. I, I went to Woodstock in a limo with the press agent Jane Friedman and, and uh, wow, cool. at a hotel room. You know, the second day when everybody was muddy from the rain, and I come out in this clean shirt. I think they thought I was a narc. But, um, oh wow! So you know, over time, I I, uh, I got different jobs. I, I there was a community of people who wrote about rock and roll. Uh, the magazine. There were a lot of new magazines about it. There was no internet then. There were no blogs. You know, it was. It was mm-hmm. physical magazines. That was how you did it in this exploding culture. So there were, you know, that's cream was created, and uh, you know, I was there was a magazine called Circus um, that had color photos. That was their big contribution to the thing, and I was made managing editor mm-hmm. that for about a year, and uh, I was able to do uh, about six or seven record reviews for Rolling Stone. I was never one of their main writers, but I was so excited when I finally got a piece in Rolling Stone. I wrote a few for the Village Voice. 
you know, I I, got, I picked up work where I could get it, mostly as a freelancer. Uh, I had a couple of full-time jobs that I got fired from because I was a kid and was bad at coming in on uh. time and doing all the things that I tell people who work for me now not to do. And, um, <laughs> you know, I did it for a few years, and it was, uh, it was a very uh, interesting time. I was in my early 20s, and I had this kind of social group of people, the other people that wrote about rock. It, was, it seemed like it was a party every night that the record companies would pay for. The business was booming, and that was but, – but, you know, it, it, I hit a brick wall. I wasn't really – disciplined as a writer at that time i i didn't really rewrite i've a little some of them there's a website called rocks back pages that's kind of a huge resource of all old rock articles and they have some of my old yes, articles there yes. and mm-hmm. and i cringe a little bit when i read some of them although i'm glad they were they were saved and i really wasn't good enough to be to make a living as a writer and that's why i got the, that that's why i had to get a job at the pr company Salters at Roskin, which is where I then met Zeppelin, and I went from being kind of a mediocre rock writer to a very, very good uh, publicist, because my main attitude about music was I was a fan. I didn't really like criticizing these people. I just loved what they did, and uh, that wasn't really the best attitude to have as a serious journalist, but it was a great attitude to have as a publicist. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. I agree with you on that one. But I but wow, I liked, you, you know, I, I still had that little itch as the years went by thinking of myself as a writer. And as I when I got older I found I was able to concentrate better and take writing more seriously. And so this last fifteen years or so I've kind of resumed an avocation as a writer. There was a huge several decades in between where I didn't write much, but um mm-hmm. I've really been enjoying it more and more. Uh, you know, I wrote a book and 2003 was the first of the books, and it was kind of a political rant about, it's called How the Left Lost Teen Spirit, you know, about, you know, why I felt mm-hmm. that Democrats and the left weren't reaching out to young people or pop culture correctly. It was pre-Obama. It kind of anticipated what Obama was able to do in mm-hmm. some ways. And then I did the rock memoir, and then I did this book, and now i got to think of something else that I could do that somebody might want to read, you know. it's it's uh, but But the thing I like about it is, you know, it's on me. I don't have to have a investor or a artist like me i've just got to do it myself that's also the bad thing about it is that it's sort of lonely sometimes but i i was brought up in a house full of books i was a big reader mm-hmm. as a kid i still i still really really love that way of communicating both as a reader and as a writer and i guess that's what i'll keep doing if i can keep doing it where right. did you grow keep up going. Danny? If, I might, if you don't mind I grew asking. up in the suburbs of New York City. It was uh, Westchester County, oh, wow. and called Hastings, Hastings on Hudson. And it was about mm-hmm. 40 minutes outside of the city. And then in seventh grade, my parents sent me to a private school that was in Riverdale, which is the northern part of the Bronx. That's, there was a, you know, it was not that far from where we lived. Most of the kids came from Manhattan, Upper, you know, but but I came from the other d- direction. So seventh through twelfth grade, I went to a school in New York City. But my parents continued to live in Westchester, and then I, I the minute I could, I moved to to the city. Oh, I don't blame you. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. In between, I briefly, you know, I went to college. Um, for mm-hmm. about a week, I I got accepted at the University of California at Berkeley. I had <laughs> good SATs. I didn't have good grades, so that, Berkeley was one of the places that you could just get in based on your SAT scores. But I was so into drugs and you know hippie stuff. I I wasn't a serious student, 
But high school was a formative experience for me. And in the book, I write a lot about some of my high school friends. One of my high school classmates mm-hmm. was Gil Scott Heron, uh, oh, wow. who you know went on to write "Revolution Will Not Be Televised," one of the great uh, jazz uh, poets and artists, uh, one of the progenitors of hip hop, and. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a number of other people that I went to school with kind of connected with the counterculture in different ways. So high school was the only formal education I have, but I, I've always been a reader, so I can fake my way through a lot of things that people think I went to college. Wow. You know? so, so you like the West Coast then? You like the West Coast? I love the West Coast. I lived there for a long time. I lived in L.A. for about 10 years. I still travel there a lot, but... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, somehow or other, my life is New York-centric. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where you went to school, and that's where your family grew up. Is your family you know, still it, there? Yeah. Well, my, my parents passed away. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. my brother lives in, in Connecticut. Uh, my sister's an academic. She lives in Indiana. She teaches at DePoy University. And wow. I have two grown I have two grown children, uh, Katie and Max. My son, he lives in Atlanta. He's working for Red Bull. He graduated from Northwestern last year. And my daughter's name is Katie. Calls her has a kind of a public name. She calls herself Kay Casper Hauser, and she created a group called the Prettyets that got signed to Rough Trade. Oh, great! Really? Here and there, she's working on nice. Cool. Yeah, and she's getting married. uh, She's getting married in October to a great. A great British drummer and a beautiful guy named Lawrence Rushworth. Wow, cool. Nice. Wow, what a like. full life you've got going on. Yeah. Well, we we would love to have you back. And uh, we talked a little bit about some of the different things that you have been doing otherwise, like the podcast you do. So yeah, I'd love to have you guys on the podcast, you. too. I'd it's fun it, to, I would love especially to. as we, as mm-hmm. we get older, trying to figure out kind of who we are as beings becomes a more pressing mm-hmm. thing. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in the 24-hour news cycle or what I'm going to eat oh, for yeah. dinner or who is mean to me or who is nice to me <laughs> or, you know, am I going to get this opportunity or yeah. am I going to be rejected by this mm-hmm. one? But the reality is there is some other way of looking at one's existence. Uh, I'm a meditator. Uh, you know, I, I believe all religions lead to the same place. That's I'm great. Not a, I don't have a uh, preference, I, I, yep. uh, but I, I think that whatever path anyone can find to tune into their soul is uh, sure. is a good one, you know. Yep. Well, let's True. call for a divine intervention right now, Danny, because we need <laughs> big time, big time in the world. And yeah, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. On. I don't know that we're meant to understand yes. everything, but I share your sentiment at the beginning. Let's pray for people. and. Yep. Texas and Louisiana, and anyone coping with with this uh, biblical level floods, and uh, let's pray that people uh, can just transcend our tribalism and just recognize each other as uh, all children of one. Whether you like the word God or some other word, oh, I there's do. one the common same. essence yep. in all of us, and this idea of mm-hmm. only liking people who think like you or look like you or have the same voted the same as you is doesn't seem to work we have to find ways of connecting having said that i'm a bernie sanders i vote for bernie in the primaries for hillary in the general i'm definitely on the so-called left but i i i really feel those categories are 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 suffocating sometimes and that what matters more is human being true yep totally get that it's like all about really 
being in the moment and the book that uh, Be Here Now, I love that book. It's one of my favorite books. I always tell a lot of people, why don't you just me, stop Me too. I'm a great... Uh, Stay it, in the it, moment. It, it yeah. still holds up beautifully. I reread it a couple of years ago. I say it all the time to remind myself to mm-hmm. be here now because this moment is all we have. And uh, there's another book he wrote called Be Love Now, which yep. uh, I think is also a good... A good phrase to remember. That's a good one, yeah. Well, you know, we lost a great um, spiritual person yesterday, and uh, it's uh, Louise Hay, and uh, Mm. Louise has moved on to the next place, and uh, she's with with all of us in our hearts. So, you know, we just want to spend a lot of, Time thinking about how we can, you know, help other people right now because there's so much going on in the world. Yeah, and, I uh, wanted, uh, Holly, I wanted to add also that what Danny wrote about, which really hit me in the book, who passed away recently is Dick Gregory. Dick yeah. Gregory yeah. passed away. So mm-hmm. that really hit me when I saw it in the book. I said, wow, with the timing of the book and that he just passed away makes the book kind of like, you know, have a message, Danny. No, a mess. Well, no. you know, I mean, one of the things, obviously, he was in his 80s, and that's when, you know, some people start to leave us. Tom Hayden passed away while I was writing the book, also a great uh, oh. radical leader that inspired yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, uh, you know, Ginsburg and some of the others passed away a little earlier, and some of them are still alive. You know, I dedicate the book to Paul Krasner and Wavy Gravy mm-hmm. and Ram Dass, the three right. people in their 80s. Wavy Gravy! His kids, his two sons live right near me down the street, and uh, it's so funny that, oh, I've met Wavy too many times. Oh, that was just so much fun. He walks it like he talks it, man. I mean, he is the real deal. He just radiates. uh, He's the best advertisement for hippie culture. Other, He's happy. He's kind. Mm -hmm. He's creative. He's loving. He's alive. He's happy most of the time and and just Uh gives so much. You know, he he created this foundation along with Ram Dass and others called Seva, and they've raised millions of dollars and it's cured literally millions of people of blindness in third world countries, you know. By the way, you know, all the profits from Be Here Now went to Seva. Ram Dass didn't take a penny from it. Yep. Really? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, And uh, Wavy is, uh, yeah, Wavy's the real deal. uh, He is. Definitely. So there are some people still alive, some people that recently passed, some people that passed away a while ago. That's just the way of the way of the world. But well, uh, listen, I still what, think uh, peace want, and love uh, are the best ways to go. You know, I just yeah, I I wanted it to, sounds uh, simplistic. It sounds corny, no, but right, it's the alternative. Right. Hold on, Spencer. You're right. You're right. Go ahead. You're right. What I wanted to add, uh, Danny, that I got in touch with uh, Jerry Garcia's daughter, and she I told her about your book, and um, she'll probably want to look at it, and because it does have you know the uh, Grateful Dead, or obviously in the book from that era. Oh, but, uh, of course, and 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 we're really the carriers of a lot of that energy to subsequent generations, and the touch yeah. billions of people that no one else could touch with that energy. And Garcia Amazing. himself, I only met him twice. He was wonderful both times. He's somebody that is just to me one of my favorite musicians and and public figures of my lifetime. So I, I respect the whole band, but I particularly particularly admired uh, him, and and I, I definitely quote him several times in the book because he said so many important things about the culture that I was writing about. 
Yeah, and, yeah, I, and I mentioned the story that I had in my life, which I thought I told Holly and you about, where mm-hmm. I went to this concert at the Fillmore East, and it was the early 70s, and uh, Grateful Dead were going to play, and uh, it was 8 o'clock show, and I'm in my seat, and I'm waiting for about three hours. 11 o'clock, Jerry and the group show up, and Jerry gets on stage and says, listen, we really apologize, but you're going to remember this concert. And they played for six and seven hours straight, and when I went That's outside great. the film world, it was daylight. I never never went to a concert like that in my whole life. Six-hour concert. That's it's amazing. Awesome. You know yeah. what I wanted to tell you? I don't know if you know this, Danny, but there, um, Phil Lush opened up a venue and a restaurant up here in uh, Northern California called Terrapin Crossroads, which uh, is pretty cool because what he does is he brings in a lot of indie type music and um, wow. they play and uh, they do have a lot of the Grateful Dead memorabilia at the restaurant mm. and uh, wow. it's just a way of life. Definitely. <laughs> well, we want to both wow. thank you so much for being here. I know that we've um, gone a little bit over and we're going to be closing with a fantastic song that um, I think is part of your career, which is uh, Stairway to Heaven. It's a long God, song, perfect. but uh, we want everyone <laughs> I, I to heard enjoy it, it. I heard it many times live <laughs> and even more you times on the radio, times. and it never gets old for me. I love that song. Good, well, you good, know, good. I was originally going to close this the show with a song by Stevie Nicks that I have that I dearly love, but when you t- started talking about uh, Stairway to Heaven, I said, you know what? I got, I think that's really perfect for the weekend. We're going into a really heavy weekend, guys. Please don't drink and drive. And, uh, you know, be careful out there. Be love. Have fun. Um, you know, stay safe um, for all those people out there that are maybe possibly hearing this. And, you know, I wanted to tell you, Spence in Nashville got, is getting hit with Harvey right now, a little bit of Harvey. Yeah. I was oh, talking really? to Ava earlier. Really? Wow. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of different areas are getting hit. And I heard there's a couple other storms coming in, possibly. Yeah, Irma. But there's a new just, one called Irma. Yeah, that's hitting. yeah exactly. Oh, that's Might hit Florida. So, Let's pray that it does as little human uh, damage yeah. as possible. I heard Florida and Cuba. I heard Florida and Cuba. Wouldn't that be ironic? Wow. <laughs> Jeez. All right. God have mercy on us all. I know. I know. Well, with that, I want to say thank you so much for being here. And, again, if you missed the beginning of the show, it will be available on iTunes and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. And I want to thank both of you and Spencer. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to be back next Friday. Well, thanks, Holly. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Holly. Thank thanks, Spencer. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you. And, and we're going to be you. back next Love you. We're going to be back next Friday, uh, Spence, um, doing a show on the vinyl the vinyl show. We're going to do the vinyl That's show next right. Friday. That's right. We have Larry Jaffe from the Alex Awards, who I'm involved with, of judging, and he's done the show be before. Great. This year, this year is, makes it very special because it's the first, yep. really first real all vinyl event being Detroit, and Jack White's uh, third man's involved with us, so it's going to be a very exciting uh, conference. And That's awesome. Judith and I, Judith and I are judging in New York, and yeah. We'll be, we'll be Final. So yeah, thanks for mentioning. It'll be Holly. great. Yeah. yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm well, Larry thank you on so next much, week. Danny. Okay, bye bye. Thank you. Bye, Danny. Here you guys go. Bye bye. God bless. Right. Bye, Holly.
Bye. And bye, Spencer. Everyone out there, just be be love. As we say. Be love. Love you, dear. Love you, dear. Oh